0: Welcome to the Cast. This episode was recorded on November 7th, 2018
1: at the Transact Club. This episode features readings from Jason Frere,
0: Teresa Ott, and Katrina Wright. Just so you know, this episode contains a bit of strong language. Listener's discretion is advised. So we're going to have Teresa Ott come read for us first. Teresa Ott grew up in southern Pennsylvania and has lived in Toronto since 2007. Her poems have appeared internationally in publications including The Moth, The Fiddlehead, and Subtropics. In the spring of this year, she was shortlisted for the Moth Poetry Prize in Ireland. Previously, her work was nominated for Pushheart Prize and a National Magazine Award and shortlisted for Arc Poetry Magazine's Poem of the Year Award. She recently completed a poetry manuscript, Mother Cake, which follows two men linked by place and biology across a century. And she is currently at work on a second collection of poems. Please welcome Teresa Ott.
1: Thank you so much for coming. Uh, It's an honor to be here. Uh, I'm going to read a selection from my manuscript, Mother Cake, which actually follows two women, not men. Um, and then some of the people those women made. Uh, And one of the women is my great-grandmother Beatrice, who lived in Pennsylvania and died when she was 21. Um, The titles are Lines from Gertrude Stein's Tender Buttons and Geography in Plays, which were works written during the lifespan of my great-grandmother and I'm going to read straight through without stopping between, Uh, so I've numbered the titles to help uh, make it a little clearer as you're listening. One, I can tell a little story. By a rambling stream that ran into the Susquehanna and then south to Maryland and into the Chesapeake Bay, While female mosquitoes touched down, taking their blood meals, he kissed her mouth. He curved his hand to her hip. He moved against her. He unfastened each small button her mother had sewn, first cutting and stitching and opening, then knotting the button into place and joining the two together, never once pricking herself a cascade that, when undone, opened her to him. He traced with his finger down the long midrib of her leaf, flowed outward on the blue of her veins, and when she let him in the whole way, set her ablaze. Two, cutting shade, cool spades, and little last beds, make violet violet when. August 2011, living room, blue walls, house number 174, brick first floor, Toronto, Ontario, in a dove gray slip, 3 AM. The first part is quiet and the hue of not quite night, not quite morning. I kneel, I rest my head and try to dream. I say I think I'm in labor and mean I know I am. The characters enter, the characters like bees hover, mother the mother. The heavy myrrh of summer myrrhs at the window, lemon and cinnamon, the drink they want me to drink is too sweet. I close my eyes as if to sleep. One of the bees is humming yellow submarine. I am underwater inside. What I had planned for these hours, I can't recall. I'm on the floor. I am crawling. I am kneeling. I am all guttural now. I sway and moan the song my mother moaned for me and her mother and her mother's mother. Even underwater, I can feel the gushes gushing out of me. A gentle O hovers, whispers. My deep V fans its wings. Letting in the air, the light, then closes, then opens, then more, then far, then too far, then too far again. Too much sky is coming in. Rushing, squeezing onto the head of a buttery pin. Enormous summer swells whole in me. Lows a single low-pitched sound. Milkweed, cornflower, acres of nectar, river, supine sun. At once through my fiery throat. The hot moon is washing up. The hot moon is washing up. The honeysuckle is opening its mouths. The cicadas are thrumming, deafening. Three. The ceiling was separated from the floor, everywhere. August 1930. Farm, RD1, Rural Delivery, Spring Grove, Pennsylvania. West, Blue Ridge Mountains. East Susquehanna River. A neighbor stopped by to drink from the spring. The woman knew Beatrice and her children and when she didn't see anyone or hear anything, she began to look around the property. According to the local newspaper, she was found about 3.30 o'clock. Hanging from a beam was the other part of the rope, which had been parted by the weight of the woman's body. Four, is there an exchange? Is there a resemblance to the sky which is admitted to be there, and the stars which can be seen, is there? After every inner part of me had rippled through her, coiling together so deep, I did not know how I could do it. The billions of my cells spinning, the billions of hers without a conscious thought. In sheer rapid reflex of blues and reds and slippery purples, wound tight and vibrant into a person the length of my arm. Here she was. I breathed in the crease of her neck, I kissed her there, below the tiny angle of her jaw. And when she opened her eyes, I saw I had made a fawn. With glistening pools so deep, so far back, that in the particular frequency of light passing between her eyes and mine, I could see the violet fields rising from the primordial mud of our beginning, in which I came to understand we would always leap and roam. Five. Calmness, calm is beside the plate, and in, way, in. August, 1930. Driven to despair when her husband left home with their three children, Mrs. Beatrice Marie Miller, wife of Wesley Miller, ended her life sometime yesterday by hanging herself at her home about a mile north of Stoverstown. Historic weather data indicate the temperature that day hit a record high, which since has not been surpassed. 102 degrees. Fortunately, according to Good Housekeeping August 1930, August markets offer more than the usual variety of effects and flavors and food, and the imaginative housekeeper should have little difficulty in achieving hot weather meals that are cooling. The domestic life of Mrs. Miller of late has not been happy, reported the newspaper. In her marriage, misunderstandings had arisen frequently. Six, what is the name of the girl? If something of herself is taken and given to him, the clavicle of a bird, a shard of charcoal and star, does a sky anywhere peak and fall? If she blinks and he is there, does the staccato of her heart for a moment disappear, disembark? If her hand then brushes his, does he ignite? Does he return the sapphire of a flame? Like any good story, the end is already written into the beginning. Can she ever be something removed, freed, if under a sliver of his bone, her heart flourishes. If she stands on the horizon and at the right point, will she vanish? Seven, the care with which the rain is wrong and the green is wrong and the white is wrong, the care with which there is a chair and plenty of breathing November, 2014. On a Saturday afternoon, my husband and our daughter went out into the cold and came home with a Christmas tree. That night, after we had strung the lights and she had helped to hang the ornaments, after she had fallen asleep in bed, while we sat in the glow, He said he was seeing someone else. Eight. She was afraid then. She was one needing charming stories and happy telling of them, and not having that thing, she was always trembling. I cried every day for seven months after. I stopped counting at seven months. My heart started pounding erratically. It would rise up. It would throb. I would feel my actual heart stop. I would feel it pause. By spring, he said he didn't know who, me or the lover. He would choose. For two days, I wore a heart monitor with six branching electrodes taped to my chest. Every beat was recorded, which someone I would never meet would somehow try to read. Nine. What do I feel today? I feel that I do know how to air a woman. In a cotton chemise and a long string of pearls, She wanders from room to room, the white of her leaking into the white of the gown, wet and sweet. Through the walls reverberating, like a a clock striking every hour that does not grow dim or end, his words, you'll never see them again. And her own, her passages tensed and surging with milk, you'll have to kill me first. And from the drawer her father had made, before a tree fell in the woods and fractured his spine, she takes a knife. She walks to the dresser on which rests the black and white of her beloved. And while he stares, solemnly unflinching, in one flex of her arm, she shatters the glass and gashes his throat. 10. In what way are forests black or white? We saw them blue with forget-me-nots. Before Harold and Candenza, the parrot we have now and have had for the past 10 years, the one that outlasted our marriage, there was Lou Harris, a tiny blue bird that died in my hands, inexplicably and suddenly. Only months after we had gotten her, while my ex, then my fiance, was overseas. And Lyle Lovett, a green conure that lived with us for one week before my brother died in a car crash, and while we were away for the funeral, and he, under the supervision of our upstairs neighbors, drowned in our toilet. We've never been able to speak of Lyle since. Yesterday, while walking the path that leads around the house to the door of my apartment, I glanced down and saw on a stone. The carcass of what I assume was a robin that had lived in the nest outside my window in the spring, a robin that, for a while, was an oval blue egg so small it seemed impossible it could fit a whole bird. Perhaps it was pushed out of the nest which for four of them really was too small, or it tried flight and couldn't quite get it in time. Now, months later, the leaves and cold beginning to descend. It must have been dragged out of the brush by some other animal. On a rainy day 11 years ago, my brother flew from a car driven by his friend. I like to think he circles the globe and sometimes comes to rest near our mother. When something is taken away or ceases to be, it seems almost a fiction, as if it had always been imaginary. Before it was mine, the sapphire my husband gave me for our wedding belonged to his great-grandmother. She is only a story now, too. The nest is still in the tree What was visible both has and has not become invisible. My dumb hands, the size of birds, can still make a church and a steeple. 11. There are more places not empty. After months of sleepless nights, streaming milk, boiling tea, buckets of laundry, potatoes, slicing cucumber, braiding onion, kneading bread, chopping cabbage, the baby wanting to feed again, soaking eggs and beets, turning purple red, scrubbing the sheets, venison sausage, cold sandwiches with mustard, her baby opening her mouth in the early hunger that precedes crying another lover's demands, and the little rivers of her breasts letting down their flow again. She hikes her calf-length blue calico. She pulls herself up, slings a leg over the dark, black, muscled back of the horse. She takes off across the field, the cold startling her lungs, her corneas inverting, and then another gesture, writing the distant silhouette of mountains, her long raven hair flowing straight behind her, then catching on the wind and blowing up and all around her.
0: Without further ado, please help me welcome Jason Freer, who is originally from Kitchener, Jason is also the operations manager at The Fabulous, The Puritan Magazine. And this book, Everyone Rides the Bus in a City of Losers, is his first book from ECW Press. Please welcome Jason yeah. Frere. Get up there. <laughs> <laughs> thank you,
2: everyone. And uh, thank you to uh, Kinesia and Michelle and Pivot for uh, having me here. I've wanted to uh, wanted to read a pivot pretty much since I saw my first one back in like 2012. Uh, so this is really great. Thank you so much. Uh, this is the book, Everyone Rides the Bus in a City of Losers that I'll be reading from. And so the book is uh, more or less all about uh, Montreal. Uh, I used to live there uh, and, you know, left a lasting impression. So I just sort of obsessively wrote about it for a long time. I'm going to start with a poem called... Uh, The Collector of Saint-Sud, and this is after a graphic novel called uh, Chronique du Saint-Sud by Richard Suicide, which is all about uh, his weird hoarder neighbor. Yeah, it's a great graphic novel. Pick it up if you ever get a chance. All my life I've been collecting, through putrid summers and acid boxing days, I've paced the blocks between Ontario and Rachel. I've skirted the park with my red children's wagon, belting stove tops to refrigerators, I've dragged my swollen feet up the hill to Sherbrooke, and with my back to hall, I've tiptoed down to my house again. I've caught bedbugs and cockerels, I've had lice in my beard and scabies on my kneecaps, I've scraped my chest hair clean on scrap metal and bled through my lizard-cracked hands over every appliance corner. I've brushed away every splinter. I've yanked out every stray nail. I've fixed and tossed and rummaged. I've salvaged everything I could. I've sat and I've waited on everything I couldn't. My eyes always fixed in the junk piles for that secret part. Every day is garbage day. I cannot sleep on moving Eve. I'm worse than midnight movers and procrastinator packers. I fitted, I strangle myself in my blankets. I drown myself in beer, hoping to black out. But I can hear my old merchandise up the hill. The broken blenders, the toaster ovens, the wrought iron fence posts, the cracked signage, the secondhand startovers. I'll take them back in. I'll keep them here and mend them. I'll find them homes and shelter the ones with nowhere to go. I'm a bear, a dragon, a thief at the gates of the landfill of forgetting. My paces are harried. I hear them on scaffolds and pits. Behind walls, they're the dynamiters, the pile drivers, the bulldozers. They're everywhere. The demolishers, the thrower-outers who want new things, new glass that smashes too quickly, new memories of nothing as if they haven't learned to forget. They're always quitting and starting over. I write write their biographies in bric-a-brac. I'm a preservationist, a curator in the museum of obsolete purchases. I keep a perfect catalog the cleaners cannot rob me. They are taking away my front lawn, my sofa, my beer fridge, my bicycle parts. I'll take them to court. I will collect each item they've condemned the incinerators, every issue of aloe vedette, every hand-stitched mass of paper, every pipe and hubcap patterned with their unique neglect. They cannot demolish my museum of themselves. I keep a perfect inventory of tetanus shots and stains. So um, one of the things about this book, is uh, I wrote a uh, poem for uh, every station on the Montreal metro. Um, I'm going to read a few, but also uh, before I do this, I'm just going to ask how many of you have lived in Montreal or visited Montreal? Raise your hand. It's a good number of you. Okay, I'm going to read a couple of the stops, but I want you to think of uh, the stop where you used to live or a stop that you really liked. Just, uh, and I'm going to ask you to shout out some suggestions for me to read later, okay? If I don't uh, read them now. So I'm just going to read a few in a row. Pardon me, because I'll be skipping a bunch of pages. First one's uh, Vendome. When all my friends were gone, I went to find new ones. They all owned knives and hid them in their boots. They always had new kittens and they traded their diseases. At Vendome, I left them to the soap operas of Runaways. And uh, so we're on the orange line. We're going to ride the orange line a little bit further up to Mont Royal. <clears throat> 7.30 on the STM. It's full of everybody. Sweating under tukes. That life. Hoping the bus is on schedule, even in the weather. They've been to wherever and booting themselves back home. They think of dry and sort of warm. They have all the reasons in the world not to get out of bed tomorrow. To stop at Mont Royal Station and walk the avenues far from their homes until it is past midnight and the city's heart is murmured by snow. Laurier. Equip yourself with tedium on the adventure of your sobbing heart. When your eyes recover their sight beneath the dream world, you will recognize the shape of monsters through the ceiling grates. Cockroach, you will survive the illusion, even if you must eat your own who choked and died on a sweet-smelling powder. And because the Union of Postal Workers is uh, on rotating strikes, this one is on the blue line, uh, Faber. The Union of Postal Service Workers rebelled. They unglued stamps and rewrote addresses. They diverted all packages to a Callowit and Capo Mill. Home service was restored exclusively for nomads. Um, and now, that was all I had prepared. So, if you have a station that you really want to hear me read, I've got them all. So, uh, just shout, shout them out. You know what? I, had, I heard one request already uh, that uh, pre-delivered to me for DeCastle now. So, I can read that one. The market is a frisson, a contact, a waste of time, a market woman with eggs, a vintner, a flower girl, a gourd monger, Barbot game all afternoon. Anyone? No? Don't be shy. Come on. No one has any? Oh my god. Okay, fair enough. That's why I asked you to raise your hands. But you know what? If you don't remember it, that's cool. I've got other poems prepared. I don't know. It depends on where you start from. What's the last one in the series? The last one in the series? Oh, the last one in the series is uh it's uh Island, Université de Sherbrooke. Perfect. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for that. Okay, cool. Uh, yeah, so this one's about leaving Montreal because this one goes off the island. The longest line on the STM is the yellow line. Leaving the island is like leaving behind hope and letting go of dietary idealism. Um... This next piece uh, was uh, published in a great little publication that's always doing new things called Bad Nudes. Uh, Yeah, this is called uh, Friendship Cove. She said blondes were for pussies. What she meant was beer. The band dressed like Riquet figures and three out of four played keyboard. Syrup stickied the walls and drew the hobgoblins from their bedrooms. After that summer, the noise bands came, and we sucked our shoes out of the punk. The food at Mo's stayed the same, and the Seaburg Wallimatics still never worked. We went to Ilmotore and pretended not to know our old classmates. She couldn't stop her favorite bands from breaking up. She just stopped listening. New left our vocabulary. No one plays at Friendship Cove. Cushfield and Wakeman wait for Graham, Graham Van Pelt's last chorus to rattle the aluminum. They fear the ghosts of the fashionably dressed so much more than zoning committees. I wore that blazer that's lost its shape and smells like falling asleep on the subway. She said you can only hide at Moe's until, dra- until dawn drags you out by its teeth, in the morning, and in the morning rush you're nauseous with your own mildewy insomnia. The bottom of the bottomless coffee is full of goblins and the ends of things. So this, uh, this is the one poem that is not a Montreal poem, but it's written to someone in Montreal because, you know, when you travel, all you think about is home. It's called The New York City Christmas. I am entertaining winter, and I will make her cocktails from the minibar. It is almost Christmas, and you are in another borough past the Bronx. Frenzy of bags and credit cards sputters as the night deepens with lonely siren blasts and the ocean roar of mechanical life. You must be alone, by the useless radiator in our apartment by the river. I have winter here, cool and charming over the quivering blocks of the Upper West Side, unsteady and fragile though they slowly sink Manhattan. She does not like my sidecars. Winter is the season of love. In Times Square this evening, the lights were, lone- were even lonelier in the cold. In Times Square, it is hard to believe that I am alive. Now Amsterdam is vacant, though taxis and rent-weary pedestrians pass inaudibly. And in those many towers, someone must watch television. Come through the Catskills. We can go to beaches along the boardwalk in summer and watch mermaid parades. Come. Ride the sea beach line in seashells with a shark net skirt, a starfish painted on your cheek. We'll eat pretzels and hot dogs for dinner. They roast chestnuts in December. I'll bring you postcards from MoMA and scribble lyrics on the back of them. Winter is a motherfucker, a longshoreman, bellowing through the bottom of his rye. Here, she's the longshoreman's daughter, and he will slug my teeth out three by four. I've got a couple more pieces for you, just two. This next one is um, my little entry into a genre that I'm really fond of. My favorite piece in this genre was actually written by Spencer Gordon. And that genre is making fun of Leonard Cohen, which you can do now because he's basically been canonized, so you, know, you kind of have to. It's called The Worst Tour Guide on the Island. Before the ship sailed straight to Duluth, Lenny came with a hint of coal particles. It was around the corner that D shot an Iroquois chief at the gates of Montreal, one in the throat, one in the head, gun in each hand. This is Skid Row, was Skid Row, unless the kids belting Sebastian Bach and Steve's music store count. Lenny lives up the way, in a modest duplex on the square, knocking his door around four in the morning singing, everybody knows the ship is sinking, and everybody knows your home address. He'll stick his head over the sidewalk. Never ask for tea and oranges. He keeps a green bin up there that he only empties in November. He sits there eating Valencias, brewing Earl Grey that he will never drink, curling rinds between his fingers. Yeah, it was the weirdest thing when I found out where Leonard Cohen lived. Half the time, it's just like what, you people just know this. Like, how is Yeah. And this last one I will leave you with is called uh, Restaurant Double A. Lovely restaurant that's open late nights in uh, St. Henry. And uh, it's actually about uh, uh, speaking French. The waitress scoops up menus, the orders of those not swayed by more exotic hot dog dressings. My tongue fails me again and again. I can't trust it. I will lick the escalators at Place Saint-Ali and let the blunt teeth shear away betrayal. Then truth will spout from my infected mouth. Yes, and I can tell the waitress, I don't like relish. It's too green, and the gravy is a little sweet. If I could live either by the mountain or the Elpro building, I would have have to pick the closest to Restaurant Double A. "'Covet me, Kaskrout, the way I covet you. "'My faux pas are breaking through the ice from below. "'They are crawling out of the canal. "'I must bolt the doors and rally the cook with his baseball bat "'and arm the girls from next to Blackjack with shotguns. "'The only illusions on Dream Street are VLT victories "'and the appreciating value of real estate investments. "'Many don't know this. "'When the Chasse Gallery veered from the New Year's lights of V. Marie, "'it crashed on the site of the Elm Pro. "'The devil orders the cheeseburger combo every Sunday morning.' I only understand the waitress 30 seconds after she speaks. I'm a citizen of Trudeau's country, half lingual and sort of tolerant. St. Henry greeted me with a Schoinigan handshake. I only hope I won't end up rummaging through blue bins after selling my degrees on Kajiji. Even men who could be my boss eat the subs at restaurant double A. The waitress is everything I am not, completely indifferent. I garble, like a man stumbling up and down active locomotive roots and judging the difference the different flavors of blue dry seven point two percent and blue dry ten point one percent. The tables are full. The plates are empty. The waitress stares me down, and with a stern smile takes my water away Away Oh why whatever. I hear it all the time. Thank you everyone so much.
3: Katrina Wright is the author of the poetry collection, Table Manners, Vehicule Press, 2017, and the short story collection, Difficult People, right here. Nightwood Editions, 2018. Her short stories have appeared in Geist, The New Quarterly, Joyland, Grain, and Room. Her poems have appeared in Prism, International, Prairie Fire, Fiddlehead, and Lemonhand. And they have been anthologized in The Next Wave and in The Best Canadian Poetry, 2015 and 2018. She is the poetry editor for Puritan and a co-founder of Desert Pets. Please welcome Katrina. Thank you uh, very much all for being here. Thank you to my fellow readers. It's always so much fun to read at Pivot. So thank you to Kenisa and Michelle for hosting. Um, So I will be reading uh, stories from my new collection, Difficult People. So it came out October 20th, so it is a newborn. So it's very glamorous. Well, I guess newborns aren't that glamorous. It's very needy, and it wants you to love it. So please love it. Uh, I'm going to read the first half of one of the short stories from the collection, which actually is also about babies. Um... Yeah, I'll read the first half. Uh, There's not too much you need to know here. I will warn you that I am switching points of view. So if you find yourself confused, we're probably in a different point of view um, between uh, two characters, Olivia and Chris. Olivia's firm stomach rested on her thighs, her forehead pressed against the mat, palms turned upwards, poised to receive the universe's bounty, balasana, child's pose. Breathe, the instructor said, walking between the mats and exaggerating her own breath until it sounded like surf roaring against a rocky shore. Olivia inhaled the rich, mossy scent of sandalwood essence and sweat. No, she corrected herself. Glow. They were glowing, all of them. Breathe with intention as you push into downward dog. A month ago, the instructor had advised Olivia to visualize her breath flowing out through the open window, coasting across Quebec, New Brunswick, Nova Scotia, cooling as it crossed the Atlantic, and warming again as it gusted southward, until finally it drifted through open lips and slid sweetly uh, down the umbilical cord into her baby's. Olivia tried, but she was distracted by the woman in front of her, whose tattoo-garlanded arms shook with the exertion. Good job, mommies. Three more seconds. Olivia attempted to ground herself with self-talk. Through our yoga practice, all of us are connecting to our unborn children, who are growing strong in the wombs of the Gujarat women, all except for that woman, whose right belly presses against her black top. Chris was the only one in the prenatal yoga class who was physically pregnant. But she didn't mind. She liked being the most extreme person in the room. That's what led her to become a surrogate in the first place. For Chris, surrogacy was a form of self-binding, a technique she read about in Psychology Today magazine. The idea was that people had multiple selves competing inside of them, some of whom wanted destructive things. So when the good self was at the helm of the mind, it made an executive decision to defy the other wayward selves. For example, the good self hid the video games in a weird place in the basement, Or it told its friends not to let it bum cigarettes, no matter how much it begged. Or in Chris's case, it decided to rent out its uterus to a baby, forcing the other selves to stop boozing. At first, Chris worked for a surrogacy agency, but they took too big a cut of her income, so she decided to work for herself. She hired someone to make her a website. Her profile picture showed her decked out in a house dress and frilly apron, red lips pulled into a campy smirk as she removed cinnamon buns from an oven. Within a week, she was swamped with requests from the upwardly mobile. She was part of the local pregnancy movement, composed of Westerners who wanted to reduce their ecological footprints by using surrogacy services close to home. Local surrogates were more expensive than Indian and Guatemalan surrogates, but clients were willing to pay for the ethical capital and to avoid traveling. During the final meditation, the students all lay on their sticky mats while the instructor closed the blinds and played a remix of whale music. A series of grunts, moans, and squeals buoyed by an electronic reggae beat. Take a moment to congratulate your body internally. Chris's body took this advice literally and tooted its own horn. Luckily, the smell of the fart blended into a humpback's screech. But the smell of rotting cabbage didn't have a corresponding subterfuge, and many women scrunched their noses, some going so far as to pinch them and fan their hands back and forth across their faces as the instructor continued. Imagine yourself back in the womb, safe and warm in the waters of the mother life-giver, more like gas-giver. Chris thought to herself. These women should try actually being pregnant and see if they can stop themselves from breaking wind every two minutes. I want you all to give yourselves a pat on the back when you leave the studio today. The instructor stopped, pressed the stop button, cutting off a m- whale mid lamas wheeze. Good job, namaste, namaste, said everyone. From her vantage point on the floor, Chris could see all the pedicures and shapely calves headed for the change room. She was struggling to sit up when a hand shot into view. Let me, a woman said. The woman had curly, light brown hair cut into a bob and was wearing a turquoise sports bra and black shorts with matching turquoise racing stripes up the sides. Chris accepted the hand. Amazed by the ease with which the woman was able to hoist her, she nearly fell forward, but the woman in turquoise steadied her. Thanks, Chris said, wrapping her hands around her incubating belly. I'm Olivia. She extended her hand and Chris took it. Chris. Chris gulped down some water as she and Olivia headed over to the change room. She checked her phone and just as she suspected, her inbox was crammed with text messages from Beth. Remember to take your vitamin. Doctor's appointment on Wednesday. Hope you are having a great class. It's all written in amazing text speak, so. Uh, Chris dutifully moved her thumbs around on the keypad. Thanks. See you Wednesday. The blackberry, like the yoga class, was micromanaging disguised as a gift from Beth. The blackberry was vintage and it cost a fortune every month. Most people could receive message, messages cognitively, but Chris had never had a system installed. One of the main reasons why she was so popular as a surrogate, lower risk of side effects. Let me guess, Olivia said as she pulled off her sports bra, your husband. "'No,' Chris said, trying not to stare at Olivia's nipples, "'which were tiny, fawn-colored and smooth, "'unlike Chris's pink saucers fringed with coarse hairs "'that she didn't pluck. "'Because why would she? "'I'm a surrogate, it was the mom. "'How interesting. "'Off came the short shorts, "'revealing not a single hair down there, "'same as all the other women in the change room. "'We would have loved to hire a local, "'but we didn't have enough. "'Olivia rubbed her fingers together to indicate cash. "'Right, cool.' Chris turned to the wall and removed her tank top, surprised by her uncharacteristic modesty. What did this woman want? Normally, none of the other women talked to her. While it was fine to hire a surrogate, it was still a tad unseemly to be a surrogate, and Chris wasn't about to let someone test out pseudo-tolerant views on her. Let me guess, she said snidely. Guadjarat, twins, one boy and one girl. Guilty, Olivia said. Boy, am I predictable or what? Um, well... Chris, still facing the wall with its lotus flower mural, pulled on a pair of wrinkled linen pants. Don't worry about it. Just why aren't I having my own baby, Olivia wondered, sipping on her matcha latte as she walked towards her loft apartment on King Street. No one with money gave birth anymore. Hadn't she read a study just recently proclaiming that only 1% of university-educated couples were having their own babies now? But it was a moot point. Not only was she over 40, but she'd also had her first microprocessor installed a decade and a half ago, and the early models, as well as many of the new ones, were known to cause infertility. It was in that first wave of infertility that maternity leaves had had all but disappeared from benefit packages, though they'd been drying up well before then. Now, most of the people who Olivia worked or socialized with got their twins from Indian surrogates and their live-in nannies from the Philippines. The following week, Beth drove Chris to class in her gleaming SUV hybrid. You're so lucky, Beth said, as she helped Chris step down from the enormous leather seat. What I wouldn't give to be going to yoga instead of back to the office. Chris knew this was bullshit. Beth loved being an investment banker, loved gripping the trapeze of the market as it swung ever more violently, loved the definitive clop of her pumps down Bay Street and the cleanliness of newly printed business cards, loved the briny taste of a dirty gin martini at the end of a long day, loved it all so fervently that Chris sometimes worried about the baby. Pregnancy was a crucial bonding time, and what did it mean that most Western mothers never had this physical connection anymore, would never feel their baby's kick? But whenever Chris started thinking this way, she scolded herself. It was the damn hormones talking, no use getting maudlin over some imaginary connection. Still, sometimes Chris couldn't conceal her annoyance with Beth. At the doctor's last week, Beth had gasped, a nauseated expression on her face when she saw Chris's stomach the bright red stretch marks streaking across her taut skin, and the older ones that now glowed silver, all tangled in a mess of faded tiger lily and cherry blossom tattoos. Chris cringed when she had to confront the images on her belly. They were images that were connected to a time in her life she felt so far away from that it felt like someone else's life. As a teenager, she'd been straight edge, no intoxicants, no sex, no meat, no body modifications. She'd worn organic clothing and swigged green tea. Then, at some point in college, she'd become a raver, living the next few years with a glow stick in her mouth, a pacifier hung around her neck, and a mind forever bursting with ecstasy. After this got old, she'd become a punk, long after punk's initial heyday. It was during this phase that she'd gotten inked and acquired an affinity for Jagermeister and Bourbon. She never mentioned the former substance abuse problems to prospective clients who would, she assumed, have balked self-righteously, though Chris suspected them all of being addicted to antidepressants, painkillers, and anti-anxiety meds themselves. If you think my belly's gross, Chris said to Beth, you won't stand a chance during delivery. It was funny, Chris realized, that in a way, pregnancy had returned her to her former teenage self. She was rigid about everything that went into or on her body. Sure, she wanted to control her negative impulses, but she also wanted to produce a superior product. I don't know what you mean, Beth said, staring blankly at the sonogram screen. I think it's all so beautiful. All right, if you want to find out what happens to them, you'll have to ask me, I guess. (laughs) Thank you very much!
1: (laughs) To find out more about
0: The Pivot Readings, Go to pivotreadings.ca